to Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gethsemane, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that it began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners of Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of God will stand forever. Good morning, everybody. I was feeling especially tired during 9 o'clock service, but I think because the youth members are with us, I I feel some more energy uh, during this service. So thanks for joining us, guys. God is good? All the time? All All right. Always good to have the youth join us. And uh, I also want to welcome uh, Stephanie Gillette. Did I pronounce that correctly? Thank you. Uh, Mark's older sister. Is that also correct? He wrote down Mark's much older sister, but I think that was meant to be a joke. Uh, He has a smiley face right next to it. So let's let's warmly welcome Stephanie, uh, who's with us for the first time today. Uh, today I chose to, wow, it's really boomy. Today I chose to uh, depart from our regular Acts series. Uh, so we'll take a two-week break from that because I've chosen a text from the Gospel of Luke this morning. And then uh, Pastor Xiong, your favorite pastor, will be uh, speaking next Sunday. Everyone loves Pastor Xiong Sundays. But uh, he'll be speaking next Sunday, and then we'll come back the following Sunday and, and jump right back into uh, uh, our series in Acts, okay? So that's the plan. Uh, today will be a little bit of this and that, a little bit of apologetics, a little bit of self-counseling. <laughs> I'm not going to use my three-point outline today, so we'll see how this goes. Let me open up with uh, this question, uh, especially for our our younger members uh, joining us today. What are you most afraid of in life, guys? What are you most afraid of in life? Uh, You can really learn a lot about someone just by knowing what they're most afraid of, right? If you're afraid of the dark, for instance, uh, there's actually a name for that, right? You guys know what it is? It's called nyctophobia. 
Uh, I had to look that one up. It's a very common fear among children. You know, uh, when my kids were at a certain age, none of them wanted to go down into the basement by themselves. Why? Because it was just too dark, right? Nyctophobia. Another common fear children seem to have is something called palatophobia. Uh, you want to guess what that is? It's fear of bald people, right? Yeah, yeah. Just want to start kind of uh, with some light, lighthearted humor, okay? Uh, when kids see me for the first time, not all of them, some of them, right? They, uh, they tend to run away, right? Um, so what do you fear? You know, some of you are OCD, and you fear all kinds of germs. Uh, you suffer from what's called mysophobia. Some of you suffer from social phobia. I would say many of you suffer from social phobia, right? Uh, this is fear of being evaluated negatively by others. That's why many of you, well, maybe that's an exaggeration. Some of you would say things like, Pastor Paul, can you not ask me to ever pray in public? <laughs> I hope you pray in private. I understand if you don't want to pray in public. Um, or, Pastor Paul, can I not share my testimony during service? Right? Not many people want to do that either. Why? Because this fear of standing in front of people. Well, do you know what I fear? Right? I have no fears, right? Just, I, actually, I... Some of you know this. I, you know, I, I, I tend to fear the water. I thought I feared sharks uh, before, but after, I, after thinking about it more, it's not that I fear sharks. I fear the open water where you have no control and really no way of escaping. You don't know what's underneath you. Right? That's a scary feeling for me. There's a clinical term for that. It's called agoraphobia, or fear of open spaces, or any place where escape would be difficult. Isn't that scary? That's my greatest fear. All of these fears that we suffer from uh, point to the simple fact that we as people are rather weak and fragile. Right? We're a fearful bunch, if we're to be honest. And that's become much more obvious over the past 18 months, hasn't it? We're a fearful bunch. So what does all of this have to do with today's message and today's passage. Well, many prominent secular thinkers have basically argued in the following way. They ask, do you know why every culture has some form of religion? And they answer, because people are psychologically weak and afraid. And their claim is this, you know, people are afraid of things that can destroy them. And so in response, they create religion to protect them from their fears. It's like, look at how terrifying nature can be, right? There are these tornadoes, these earthquakes, fires, floods, tsunamis, cancer, and now we're living in a world of viruses, and look, nature does not care if it destroys us or not. And so secular thinkers have argued that to survive these forces of nature, we, we give different personalities to the forces of, of, these, of the wind and fire and storms, and we 
create mute idols out of wood or stone so that we can feel safe around them. It's like when there's a drought, for instance, we bow before our little man-made God and say, Oh, God of the rains, this drought is just too much for us to bear. So I sacrifice this cow to you. Now will you send some rain? That's by and large how the secular mind understands religion. You know, we're paralyzed by all of these fears, and so we create these personal, tangible idols that we can relate to and not be afraid of. It's essentially a way to cope with our fears, is the claim. So let's test out this hypothesis against our story this morning. That's where I'd like to begin. Remember that this is very early on in Jesus's earthly ministry, and he's about to call his first disciples. Okay, and it's in, you know it, it might be interesting for those who were with us to the Acts series because we can kind of compare the early younger Peter here, Simon Peter, to the older Peter that that comes in in the Book of Acts, and uh, it's interesting to me. Remember that Simon, right, Peter was this expert fisherman before he was called to be one of Jesus' original disciples. Uh, do you guys enjoy fishing? I know some of you may. I know, I, I know maybe two, three of you who do. Uh, some of you actually asked me uh, a while ago, hey, Pastor Paul, you want to join us for fishing? And my answer to you was no, definitely not, right? Uh, I, wasn't a, I wasn't being a good pastor in that moment. I just, I just don't like fishing, okay? I don't I just, it, it seems like a waste of time to me, right, to be honest, right? I have other things I want to do. <laughs> um, you know, the only reason I would ever fish is if my family was starving and I, <laughs> I absolutely had to go out and catch something. Well, you know, Peter, he, he fished because he had, to as, he had to do so as well because it was his job. It was his livelihood. It was a tough job. But because it was his profession, he was really good at it. He was an expert fisherman. And in our story today, it says that Peter and his crew were fishing all night, right? Not just for a few hours, but all night. Let me ask you, students, how many of you have pulled an all-nighter before? Huh? How many of you? Okay, a few hands there. What do you feel like in the morning after you pull an all-nighter? Do you feel good? I wasn't a great student, but I, I remember pulling an all-nighter at least twice, and every morning, eat, well, the times I did stay up really late or pull an all-nighter, I just, I would not feel, I felt miserable, right? So can you imagine how Peter felt? It, sa- it says that he didn't just stay up all night, but <laughs> even after staying up all night, he caught nothing. It's like if you stayed up all night studying for an exam, what would you expect to get on that exam, right? You would expect, if not an A, then at least a B, right? But instead, think, what if you pulled an all-nighter, and despite all of your efforts, you still got an F? How would that make you feel? And that's how Peter must have been feeling here in this story, right? And we see him coming back from this fruitless night of fishing, and this Jesus character who is slowly becoming more known, he asks if he can use Peter's boat to teach 
in. So just imagine, after a long night of sweat and labor, Peter now has to listen to Jesus' teaching, right? So what do you think Peter was thinking, you know, as, as Jesus was teaching? I, I can't be too sure, but, I mean, everyone was in awe of Jesus, right? So he must have been thinking, well, I'm, I'm really tired, but Jesus, he's, he's really good at what he does, right? This Jesus was a good teacher, and he was also healing some people back then. So he's, he, he, had, he, he gained the respect of the people, and so Peter must have been thinking, Jesus is a good teacher, he's a great healer, and this is why he's attracting all, the, all of these people, right? But then Jesus stops teaching, and he turns to Peter and says, Peter, let's now go out together into the deep end and do some more fishing. Brothers and sisters, think about what you're good at doing. Some of you may be really good at baking, right? What if someone came up to you, like myself, with no baking experience? I don't think I ever baked anything in my life. Oh, I, I attempted to bake those croissants that come in those cylinders, right? And I didn't know you had to fold them a certain way. I just like, laid them flat, thinking that they were just going to puff up on their own and become croissants. And my kids laughed at me. They were like, ha, 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 I can't believe, appa, you know. You guys know what I'm saying? Uh, so that, that's my extent of, of baking. Um, but what if someone like me came to you and started giving you advice on how to bake? You'd be thinking, is this some kind of joke, right? Or maybe, I, I know that you guys are into fantasy football these days. Maybe you're this fantasy football guru who's won multiple championships over the past few years. What if someone like me who never won anything fantasy-related, came up to you and started giving you advice on who to play this week, right? You would be rather amused. And if you were up all night because you're managing, like, 10 fantasy teams, <laughs> you'd be totally irritated by me, right? That's what seems to be happening here between Peter and Jesus, right? Peter is the expert fisherman, and Jesus is what? What is Jesus exactly? Right? Besides teacher, besides healer, he was a carpenter. He was known as a carpenter. In Peter's mind, Jesus was a carpenter who taught and healed, but he was no fisherman. Out of respect for Jesus, though, Peter says, Master, We've toiled all night and we caught nothing, but because of you, okay, let's go out and fish some more. Because it's you, we'll go out. And so they go out, and what happens next? A miracle happens. Peter sees the most amazing catch of fish he's ever seen before in his fishing career. I mean, they catch so many fish that they had to call the other boat to help them. And after they managed to bring in all the fish from their nets, what they had were two boats that were so full, they were almost about to sink. And what does Peter do here as he's looking at all of this fish? What would you be thinking if you were in Peter's shoes? It's like, honestly, 
you know. <laughs> if it were me, I might have been thinking, you know what, I just found someone who can make me a fortune, you know. I think I'll be thanking Jesus and asking him when he would be available to come out again with me on the boat. I will be thinking, you know, this, this is enough to really, you know, pay my mortgage down, okay? Or maybe, you know, pay my kids' tuition money. I can even start a, a new fishing company with Jesus, right? That, that may have been how my mind would have operated. But notice Peter is not, he is not thanking Jesus at all. He's not celebrating. There is no joy in their response. No one is happy or jumping for joy. No one is counting the profit that they just made. Rather, you see Peter falling at Jesus' knees in great fear, saying, leave me, Lord. Depart from me. Go away, because I'm a sinful man. I cannot be in your presence. I'm unworthy, was his response. He's like, why not joy or thanksgiving? Why the response, Jesus, please go away. I cannot bear to be in your presence. It's not as if Jesus gave a talk on holiness, right? He just told Peter to throw a net But what happened is this, in the presence of the Most Holy One, Peter became aware of his own sinfulness. And it's because when we see God's true greatness, which defies human logic and all human categories, we begin to see our own true unworthiness, and we cannot help but to respond in fear. Here's one way to think of it. You know, throughout history, people have created these helpful categories, all sorts of things, right, in order to make sense out of this crazy world that we live in. An example of this would be how we choose to break down creation using the categories of kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and species. I think I got this right. And we enjoy great comfort in knowing that we have certain amount of control over these things, right? These categories give us a sense of order and control that we understand the world we live in. But here's the thing. Peter and his fishing partners, James and John, for the first time in their lives, they met a person for whom they had no category. They were in a presence of a man who was in a class by himself. He was from a different world altogether. He was so foreign and so alien that it caused terror within them. One of the more well-known phobias in our day is xenophobia, right? Which means the fear of foreigners. The fear of foreigners. The fear of things that are so different from us. Well, we can basically say that these men were experiencing some form of xenophobia because Christ was so alien to all things human. It's like the more foreign someone is, the greater the fear. He was 
not just different. Right? Jesus was absolutely different. He was absolutely holy and set apart from this world. So what these men experienced that night was the holiness of Christ. And the only way Peter could respond to Jesus was, leave me, Lord. I am unworthy to be in your presence. You know, we all know to some degree what this feels like, right? To some degree. You know, when we're in the same room with an amazing talent, right, we feel somewhat unworthy, don't we? Have you been in the presence of an amazing talent? A few years ago, to celebrate New Year's, let me give you a personal example, right, to give you kind of a flavor, <laughs> I went to do some karaoke singing for fun with some church members. I haven't done this in a while. Maybe I'll do it again this year, okay? Um, just for the record, there was no alcohol involved, all right? Anyway, I quickly realized after just one round of singing that we had some professional karaoke, karaoke singers in our church, and, and I actually felt a bit unworthy to pick up the mic toward the middle rounds. It was like, okay, Shio, you could just sing again, you know. I'll just listen. <laughs> David Kwan, you can just sing. They, they, they sing two different genres, but they're really, really good at what they do. Like, Shiong's the more the Korean ballad type music, you know. Um, once, once I asked Shiong, well, why don't you sing like that on stage when you, whenever you lead worship, you know, passionately? <laughs> He's a, he's a different animal in the karaoke, you know. And David Kwan, he, he sings like this, you know, old traditional bongchak. I'm not sure if you know what that is, but he's really good at it. I was like amazed. I was like, how can he do that? Where'd you learn that, you know? Um, the guy's interesting. So I was like, you know, just go ahead and sing. I'll just watch, right? I'm unworthy to be in your presence, basically, right? And so we, we see the same dynamic at work here, but it's much more intensified, of course, in this passage because... You know, Jesus is not just a little bit better, right? He is infinitely better, right? The words and categories we use could never properly describe the greatness and the holiness of God. And in this reality, it caused Peter to literally prostrate himself before Christ with a sense of tremendous unworthiness, which eventually led him to fully surrender his life to Jesus, can't you see? So yes, you know, going back to our hypothesis, people are creative and, and they do have the capacity to invent religions and gods to protect them from their natural fears, but here's an important question to ask yourselves. Why would anyone ever invent a god whose character is far more terrifying than anything else in the world? That's what sets Christianity apart. This is what sets the God of the Bible apart. Yes, people do invent gods. They do invent idols. See, but they invent gods that are deaf and dumb so that they can be tamed and controlled. But you see, Jesus in the Bible is untamable, and he's uncontrollable. And so he's far more terrifying than anything else if you... Truly see him for who he is. This is what R.C. Sproul once wrote. Listen to unbelievers talk about Jesus nowadays. You know, great teacher, good guy, cool revolutionary, model humanitarian. 
Jesus is everything in their minds except the one true holy God whose holiness makes people tremble with fear. And he writes, why did his contemporaries kill him? They didn't kill Jesus because he said nice things. It was because the world could not, could not tolerate his holiness. Think about that. Brothers, sisters, if you think Jesus is anything less than holy, you're living with a false image of Christ. And you need to see him more clearly as he has revealed himself through the scriptures. But I understand that some of you may be on the other side of the spectrum. Okay, maybe you've been feeling like Peter in the story. You know, you've felt like running away from Jesus because of your own sense of unworthiness. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to pay attention to the rest of the story, right? Notice that Jesus does not correct Peter in saying, Yo, Peter, you are wrong to think that you're unworthy. Don't you know you are, you are worthy? Don't, don't be so down on yourself, man. You know? That's not what we read in the story. Rather, Jesus says, Peter, do not be afraid. Basically, what you say is true. You are unworthy. Okay? I am infinitely holy. But do not be afraid because I'm not going to harm you. Instead, I'm going to commission you to be my disciple. And that is grace offered. That is the good news. Truth be told, the holiness of Christ can be a very scary thing if we're expected to measure up to it all by ourselves. But thankfully, we're able to stand in the presence of a holy God because he is the one who makes us holy through the work of his son. Amen? I also want you to notice how Jesus gives Peter a newfound purpose in life, as he does for all of us as well, who recognize him as Lord and Savior. Right? Jesus calls us to join him on his mission to catch not trout or flounder or sea bass, but to catch men and women made in the very image of God who are lost and drowning in their sin, that they too may know the grace of Christ that forgives and restores their brokenness. You know, that, that thought of Jesus inviting us to join him to be on mission, it actually used to excite people. It used to stir up people's hearts and make them want to join God's mission, but I, honestly, I've been noticing over the past several years, even in my own heart, I've detected this, right? This invitation that Jesus extends to us, it actually creates a lot of fear. There's another layer of fear it creates. You know, more and more people are actually afraid to follow Jesus because it's what I've been saying the past few weeks. Why? Because the world is now so hostile to those who choose to follow him. 
At our recent staff retreat, all of our pastors took some time to reflect upon one of the pastoral letters, 2 Timothy, and it was a sweet time of devotion. Uh, in 2 Timothy, Paul instructs Timothy to be sober-minded, to endure suffering. This is the order he presents it, okay? Timothy, young Timothy, be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry, he writes. And so we were reflecting upon what that means and why Paul would instruct Timothy right, to be sober-minded and to endure, and why, why he would choose to put those you know, two or three, four thoughts together. Be sober-minded, endure suffering, right? Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Well, I think it's because of this. You know, whether it's through alcohol, or we, well, you know, where we become less and less sober, or whether it, you choose your addiction, right? Whether it's through Netflix, whether it's through social media or watching excessive amounts of K-drama, or, or gaming, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that these things are inherently bad, and that you, you should never engage, no, I'm not saying that, okay? I'm just saying that these things are often used to numb our senses, or to numb our minds, to make us less sober, right? To numb ourselves from the harsh reality that we're all living in. These are often escape mechanisms that make us less sober every day. It's a way for us to avoid confronting our current problems. You know, we just want to cruise through life as we medicate upon these things, pretending to be ignorant and unaware of the things around us. Why? Because it's just easier to live that way. I mean, the truth is that it's not easy to be a disciple of Christ in such a broken world, right? In our fear, because we are such a fearful bunch, it's our human tendency to avoid Jesus and the cost of following him. We just don't want to think about it. You know, Peter was initially fearful of who Jesus was, and he couldn't bear to be in the presence of Christ because he felt too unworthy and too weak and too incompetent. But once Jesus assures Peter of his love for him and invites him to be a disciple, Peter, it says that he follows Jesus. But as I mentioned just now, there's this additional layer of fear that tends to further paralyze us now as believers. Right? Many of us are crippled not by a fear of Jesus himself, but a fear of what will happen to us if we truly did follow Jesus in this negative world we're living in. You know, we, we have the benefit of knowing how Peter's life unfolds from this point on and, and, and how unglamorous his life actually was from an earthly perspective, right? I'm thinking Peter, Peter must have been naive when he chose to follow Jesus. He didn't know it was coming. I think if he knew, really knew it was coming, he would have been a bit more hesitant, you know? 
But it's, it's the kind of unglamorous life that we see that most of us now want to avoid. It's like in a world where Christianity is constantly mocked and ridiculed in the classroom, what teenager in their right mind would want to become a Christian? So I understand the tremendous pressure students feel at school. It's very easy to be tempted not to follow Jesus. But here's a problem. Let me just, this is where the message kind of turns. I'm going to shift on to more practical matters, okay? The problem is, once we detach ourselves from the one who made us and the the one who is able, the only one, by the way, who is able to give us true meaning and purpose in life, right? The one, the only one who is able to assure us that we no longer have to fear because his grace is sufficient for us. Like if we choose to detach ourselves from this God, you know what happens, practically speaking? We don't free ourselves from fear. We become more crippled by fear. And we become complete cowards. Do you all know why young boys and young men, if you're an old man and you still do this, man, come see me afterwards. But do you know why all young men, not, not all young men, most young men, a lot of young men and young, young boys tend to get completely hooked on video games? Right? It's because of fear, essentially. Right? They feel like the whole world is against them. And I understand the feeling because, you know, I'm, I'm a guy too. I understand this. You know, I, I'm sure most of you parents would agree with me, but... This society we're living in is not a boy-friendly society. You know, boys and young men never feel like they can ever measure up. And so, what are we supposed to do? Well, we're tempted to carve out our own little spaces where we can be in complete control, right, and have some success in our little mini kingdoms, right? Whatever video game you're trying to master, you know, that thrill of mastering something, that's important to us, right? The feeling of conquer, being able to conquer something, that's important to us. But the thing is, in the end, because so many of our young boys and men have invested so much of their time in these trivial pursuits, they never grow up to become real men who are able to be brave and sacrificially lay down their lives for others. I get this question a lot, Pastor Paul. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a man? It's a good question. I mean, there are plenty of good books written to answer that very question, but you really don't have to overthink it brothers, right? The Bible lays out the most important principles for us. Here's a very easy working definition, right? And it's true. It's, it's what the Bible basically says, 
what a man is, right? A man is called to sacrificially love others, especially women and children. You're called to sacrificially love others by being a faithful protector, provider, and defender. That's why God made you a little stronger, okay? A little more, a little more muscle, a little more bicep, tri- a little more everything, okay? You're to be a provider, protector, and defender of things. Here's what is happening in our world because our men have become complete cowards. You may have heard this story. There was a woman in the New York subway who basically told this verbally abusive guy to take a chill pill. Can you take a chill pill? What, is, what does this guy do? You can look it up. Easy to, easy to find. He punched this woman in the face. And this, this, was, this was a crowded subway train. <laughs> there were many people around observing. Do you know what the other men in the train did? Nothing. They just stood by and watched, and some just ignored the situation. In other words, they failed to act like real men or cowards. It reminds me of what I was once uh, like in middle school. Right? There were these two bullies picking on this disabled guy in the classroom, and that was so scared. I was so scared, I would just like, my head down, ignoring the whole situation. That's what a coward looks like. Something even worse happened in, in Philadelphia about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this, this got a little more attention because it was so egregious. A man actually raped a woman on a train, not just socked her in the face, but actually raped, so it was several minutes of this sexual abuse while others stood by watching, even recording the incidents through their phones. And not a single person even bothered to call 911. That's the amazing thing. And some of you heard what happened recently in the Loudoun County school system, right? A teenage boy claiming to be a girl dressed in a skirt went into the girl's bathroom and raped a girl. And the school officials tried to cover it up. How is this possible? You know, you know why it's possible? You know how it's possible? Because all the men have become cowards. They've been crippled by fear. This is what a society becomes, brothers and sisters, when people reject God and give in to their own fears. They just let their fears control them. It's, of course, not easy for girls either. My heart goes out to both the young men and young women in the church, the young boys and girls. Think about our sisters. The amount of social pressure placed upon them to be successful in the kind of work that was once only reserved for men. Right? That pressure has exponentially increased right, to the point now where, where the government, our own government, is now talking about including women in the military draft. That's how extremists become. 
You know, we live in a society where <clears throat> we highly praise women who are CEOs and Supreme Court justices, and we tell our girls to aspire to become like these great women. Right? That's the dominant message they receive, and it's, it's so unhealthy because the expectations the Bible places on women are pretty much the complete opposite of the kinds of expectations the world places on our women. Just reflect just for a moment. What, what does the Bible actually seek to teach our sisters? You know, how about like have a heart for the family? You know, how about cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit because that's what God values. Do you think our schools teach that? Do you think our media shouts that? No. How about if you're an older woman? Train the younger women to love their husbands and children well. Okay, I'm just taking this out straight, straight from Scripture, okay? Where is that message in our world today? Young sisters, it's perfectly fine if you have no ambition to work 60, 70 hours a week as a highly paid doctor or lawyer or CEO of a company. That's perfectly normal and fine. Right? Good for you. If you're someone where your thought is, Dad, Mom, I just, I wouldn't mind at all because I, I just want to be a good mom one day. I just want to be a good wife one day. And I just want to take care of the family, you know, uh, Lord willing, if, if God, you know, allows me to marry. I just, I just want to be a, a stay-at-home mom, right? You know what? That is a very healthy ambition to have. Right? Don't let anyone in the world tell you that there's something wrong with you if you think that way. Okay? You know, being a youth pastor for a long time, I've seen uh, young girls become women. So I, I see some, certain patterns emerge. When I was a, a youth pastor in Philly, there was really an issue at the time with, like, eating disorders. And I, from what I hear, just, it's, it's gotten worse over the years. You know, girls, they, they tend to struggle with eating disorders and and also with cutting, and um, I wouldn't be surprised if that, that's an issue with, with some of you in the church. And I tell you, it's, it's partly because you're living with a fear of man, and you're letting other people's expectations control you. Um, and I want you to be free from that. I've heard from, you know, just talking to other pastors, uh, we're, we're trying to get a sense of what is happening in the hearts of our young, young girls. And um, these are some things I learned, okay? For a lot of girls, just give you an example of, of, of why girls even think about harming themselves, like so they, they harm themselves, right? It's because 
they feel like it's the right thing to do. It's a form of punishment upon them for not meeting either their own standards or other people's standards, right? And when they make themselves bleed, it's like they're making a guilt offering and paying for what they did wrong, and it offers some relief. Some girls have said that, you know, life is so crazy. It, it's, it's like you're, you're like running on a treadmill constantly, and you're totally exhausted. And the blood that they shed, it just serves as evidence that they're still alive right? and offers them, them that kind of relief. Well, I know these are heavy things, but whether you're a guy or a girl, if any of you can relate to those feelings, okay, I want you to know that because of what Christ has done for us, you do not have to pay for your guilt or shame anymore, okay? And you don't have to run on that treadmill anymore either to the point of feeling numb because Jesus does not want to condemn you. He wants to free you. He wants to give you rest. He wants you to be alleviated from your sense of guilt and shame. He says, do not fear. Follow me is his call. Follow me. I will give you a life of freedom. I will show you what it means to live a life of courage. So I invite you, brothers and sisters, to trust in him and to turn away from a life of self-reliance and self-harm. Let's, let's turn to him together and let's follow him so that our weary souls would find rest in him from this point on. Let's pray together. Dear Father, open our blind eyes so that we may see the glories of our great God and, and know that you are worthy. Forgive us for failing to respond to your revelation with a heart of surrender, with an eagerness to follow you and join your mission in making Christ known in this world. Grant us faith that we may truly surrender ourselves to you and grant us courage that we may follow you, even if it means a life of suffering for your sake. We confess, O oh Lord, that our only hope is found in you. You alone are our source of comfort and peace. So once again, we offer ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.